Hello, listeners. Welcome to our podcast entitled To Your Health. Our purpose is to bring relevant health information to our community in a straightforward, easy-to-understand manner. We'll accomplish this by interviewing experts in the field and gaining their insights on how we can improve your health. My name is Dr. Chuck Harvey. I'm an orthopedic spine and hip surgeon practicing in central Pennsylvania. I'm joined with my co-hosts, Arianne Williams and Chad Allender. Our guest today is Mr. Ryan Andrews. Ryan is an experienced, board-certified, and licensed physician assistant who specializes in orthopedic surgery with a particular skill in fracture management. Ryan, thanks for joining us. Yeah. Uh, tell us a little bit about yourself, how you got started in healthcare. Yeah, happy to be here, Chuck. Um, I've been with uh, doing orthopedics. I've been a PA for roughly 21 years, orthopedics 12 or 14 years. Before that, worked general trauma surgery here in town, and then before that, got my start in a federal prison of all places. But I uh, grew up here locally um, near Glendale, went to Penn State undergraduate, and then ultimately went on to PA school in the Lehigh Valley at DeSales University. Uh, ended up in uh, basically the federal government, paid my school if I agreed to work in an underserved area. Um, went to a federal prison, worked a couple of years, paid my debt to society, if, if you will. And then um, ended up going private sector after that. And 21 years later, here I am, now going to do an orthopedic surgery. Great. How did you get interested in healthcare? Was there anyone in particular who steered you in that direction? Uh, not, not, not so much. I had nurses in my family, but uh, I went to Penn State. I thought I wanted to be an athletic trainer. I majored in that, became a certified athletic trainer, realized that their hours were terrible and the pay wasn't too good. So uh, shadowed a physician assistant, which I have a lot of kids shadow me here. And then I said, I could do this. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, you start one down one track, you take a course or two, and there you go. And next thing you know, you're graduating from PA school and you settle in this track. I wish I had this romantic story about how I had a miraculous recovery or something, but it just sort of falls together. Now, you started out with trauma services Mm -hmm. in this area. In this area, yeah. Yeah, how was your experience there? It was great. I worked for... um, a uh, really good director uh, who, uh, when I when I interviewed here, I didn't have any trauma experience. And he told me specifically leaving that interview, he says, thanks for coming, but we're not going to hire you. <laughs> Wonderful. Um, yeah, so that was nice. Anyways, he calls me three weeks later and says, want the job, and came up here. And it was frightening for six months because you learn it's like drinking out of a fire hose mm-hmm. instead of uh, a little trickle of water. But you learn. It's trial by fire. You get good at what you're doing. And um, it was one of some of the most rewarding parts of my career was general trauma surgery. And you get to learn a little bit about everything, every specialty, orthopedics, general surgery, dermatology, you name it, psychiatry. Of course, that was a big part of it. And uh, it's kind of a good basis. And it was a natural jump to orthopedics from there. So in the midst of that trauma experience, did you seek out orthopedics or was this something you knew you were going to do before you went into trauma? Uh, I had an orthopedic background. So athletic training has a big orthopedic background. So my knowledge base was most in that. Mm-hmm. And so then and I worked in general trauma. I got to know a lot of orthopedic surgeons in town who I became friends with and colleagues with. And then essentially I was recruited into orthopedics from there eventually. So it was a natural fit. Okay. Yeah, but my, my best knowledge in orthopedic, excuse me, in trauma surgery was orthopedic. So it was a very natural jump. Was there any particular case in trauma that you can recall <laughs> which was stands out among all the rest? Yeah, there, there are lots of cases. Um, people get hurt in the, in the wildest of ways. Some things are mundane, right? So old people fall down, ground level falls, and you take care of them, and you happily take care of them. Um, other times it's a lot more adventurous, you know, people making bad decisions. 
are, are, are good ones. People who decide they jump their trucks over ditches at three in the morning. Um, people who uh, imbibe a little bit too much alcohol and fall off buildings and, and things like that. So, yeah, there were, I guess, one wild case, if I had to name one off the top of my head, was it's kind of sad in hindsight, but fortunately the kid did well. He was a cerebral palsy kid, about 14 or 15 years old, very little motion of his arms and legs. His dream was to ride a four-wheeler an ATV. So on his 15th birthday, family got him and drunk, bought him a six-pack of beer, and then lifted him onto an ATV and lifted his arm up onto the throttle so that he could take off and then 20 yards later hit a parked car. <laughs> it's kind of a sad story, but, you know, when, when you ask the family how they got hurt, it's uh, – it's sad. It's it's and it's entertaining at the same time. To be honest, but yeah, you wonder where people come up with these decisions sometimes. So were, were the parents ever prosecuted for this? No, no. That somehow they weren't. But then again, I think people were involved. But I fortunately was just involved in the medical care. I'm sure there were people looking into it. But yeah, sometimes that happens. Okay. So, um, are you glad with your career choice? Are you happy with your job? Right yeah, I think if I had a time machine, I'd do it again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's a solid career. It's. Um, all in all. So if you were to talk to a young person now who's thinking of going to, to be a physician assistant, what advice would you give them? Well, how would you counsel them? I'd counsel them, I'd counsel them that uh, there are a couple ways to go about it. These are more specifics, but you can go right out of high school into a five or six year program, or you can do the route I did where you get a four year degree and then go on. The first option is much easier. The competition to get into these schools is fierce. Mm-hmm. It was fierce 22 years ago when I went. It's even more so now. For example, my old program director, who's from Altoona, she heads Hershey's program. She told me a few years ago for 30 spots, there were 3,500 applicants. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. So the odds are against you. Whereas if you go to a local school like St. Francis, for example, you get in as a high school student, you're more guaranteed a spot in the professional phase. Mm-hmm. So I would uh, counsel young kids going into it to start with it being a PA mm-hmm. versus going into another field like athletic training. I think the odds are better if you do it uh, by going out of high school. Now, over the past 20 years, you've worked with a lot of doctors. Mm-hmm. If you were to look at the physicians you've worked with, mm-hmm. what are some of the characteristics of what we say a good doctor? What makes someone a great doctor? A yeah, good doctor, a great doctor. I think um, there are several factors and I've worked with very, very good ones. That's, if you ask me the key to satisfaction is, to, is working as a PA, it's to work for a good physician. Because when you work with someone who isn't so good, your life can be hard. The great doctors I've worked with have known, number one, they're smart, of course, but there are a lot of smart doctors. They go to medical school, everybody's smart. The difference, I think, is empathy sometimes. Mm-hmm. Doctors who truly try to understand what their patients are going through. I think good communication is also key especially from a patient perspective. When a patient rates a physician, or even a PA for that matter, I think they'll rate you higher, even if the care were not absolutely pristine. If you can communicate why you're doing what you're doing, it makes a difference. I think the best doctors I've worked with have been good communicators with patients. And I think physicians being very upfront, the first trauma doctor I work with taught me right up front, he didn't sugarcoat things and it doesn't feel good to tell people worst case scenarios, but I think they appreciate it when you tell them that things may not be perfect. So I think a combination of those things uh, make a great doc. Fortunately, I work with a lot. 
Now, I remember, uh, if I get this correctly, you told me a story about a Dr. Yope Shocker. Oh, yeah. Yoke and uh, tell us about that one. I thought that was a remarkable story. Oh, that's so, yeah. Actually, we haven't talked about that for a while. So, Yoke Shocker, this is a good example of empathy and sympathy. So, to make a long story very short, general trauma service, very troubled teenage girl. She, her injuries were fine. She stayed in the hospital for weeks later for psychiatric purposes. She had to be placed at a psychiatric facility. So until she was placed, we took care of her every day. Each day, she was so violent and cursing, physically attacking staff, really, really mean. And uh, you went into the room, you were kind of abused until you left. The nurses had given up on her, and I don't blame them. You know, they went in and she said awful things to nurses. She was almost unmanageable for weeks and weeks. So each day during rounds, I would bring a surgeon around and the natural thing, to be honest with you, is you, know, you did minimal time. You walked in, you did just enough to do your note, and you waited for placement. And then until this surgeon named Yoke Shocker I worked with, I worked with him. He was uh, one of the more memorable physicians I'd ever worked with. And he was a surgeon, but he was a lot more than that. So it was his turn in the trauma service. And I'm walking him around, and I say, yeah, Dr. Shocker, this, this lady, she just we just have to go in and say hi and go. He goes, well, we're going to do more than that. I said, I gave him the situation. I said, you know, she's going to be mean and she could attack you and verbally attack. He says, no, let me, let me, let me talk to her. Let me meet her. So reluctantly, I walk in with her. She does the standard screaming at him, does her thing. He sits down in the bed with her. Yeah, I haven't told this story for several years. No, no. So, so he sat down in the bed with her and I was like, what's he doing? And he said, he basically talked to her like a human being, which she hadn't been talked to that way, partly due to her fault or psychiatric disease. And he started to ask questions outside of health. He's like, who do you love? Who loves you? And, uh, and like, I'm, I just kind of sat back and you watch this girl go from complete agitation and almost animalistic to calming down. And he started to talk to her about her life and what she wants to be and what she wants to do and how she grew up. Talk to her like a human being. 15 minutes later, they're hugging and crying and she, for the rest of that hospital stay, she never gave a nurse one hard time the rest of the time. And she left the hospital. Uh, she didn't have one altercation with any nurse. She went to a psychiatric facility as last I heard of her. But yeah, he could have just walked on. He took the time to, 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 to try to help her. Yeah, it was a pretty cool moment. Yeah, I remember that story mm -hmm. uh, you told me a couple of years ago. And it's just wonderful. Like you say, someone took the time mm -hmm. to find out what was under the surface of a human being. And I think one of the things we see now in orthopedics is we see patients for elective surgeries and we get to know them a little bit. Mm -hmm. Sometimes we get to know them for months before we operate on them. Right. But with trauma, you get to see someone at the worst, one of the worst moments of their life. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times we're not too much fun while we're hurting. Mm -hmm. So I guess a lot of patients are reactive. They're highly emotional. There's a lot of families. I remember those patients, uh, families outside of that seventh floor just standing there waiting for you to come out and they're highly emotional. So the whole place is, is pretty tight. Mm -hmm. So it is a nice story where somebody just said, okay, let me take a couple of minutes here or maybe even more than a couple of minutes to get to know someone. Mm -hmm. So once again, characteristics of a great doctor, mm -hmm. empathy, um, compassion, you know? Yeah. He was, he was probably the best at that I'd ever, I'd ever seen. He lived through uh, world war. He was a, a youth in world war two and in, in, in the Netherlands is where he grew up and he watched the Nazis occupy his town and you could sit with him for hours and he could he could entertain you but, but he truly practiced what he preached and he ended up writing a book I believe it was called The Compassionate Doctor 
and I own it. He gave me a signed copy, and it's, I still have it at home. But yeah, he was he was a great one for sure. Nice, yes, very nice. When I was years ago, when I was a physical therapist, we had done uh, some event to try to raise money, and there was a gentleman who's largely considered the father of physiatry or phys and that physical medicine. His name is Howard Rusk, and there's a center in Manhattan. It's called the Rusk Center. It's on First Avenue between 30th and 34th. Same idea. After he found out what we did, brought us up to his office. Of course, we venerated him, and uh, he had written a book and gave us a signed copy. So those things are nice to yeah. have. You know? Yeah, they are nice. Yeah, I'll definitely own it for a while. Sure. So if you look at medical care over the past 20 years, what are some of the positives that have happened and maybe one of the areas that needs some improvement? Positives that are happening, I think, I think the positives are I think more people have access to care. I think uh, when I first started... I'm not an expert on billing and whatnot or the economic or policy of healthcare, but I know when I first started that people, there were a lot of people that didn't really have health insurance per se. So a lot of people would never seek care. It seems as if there's uh, maybe a better safety net. And so I think people who would neglect themselves before seem to have better access. So I guess maybe we're doing a better job there. Healthcare, it's, you know, that's right. The second part of that was what's not doing so well. Sure. Mm-hmm. Well, it's not doing so well. It's it's tougher. People are sicker, I think, than they ever have been. Some of that's demographics. If you look at the distribution of ages in the United States, people are older. You know, the biggest population in this country are born from 1950 on, and people are just sicker. And so, and I think there are potentially are fewer people coming up in the ranks to take care of them. So from a pure outreach standpoint and a number standpoint, it's just getting harder and harder. Fewer good physicians coming out, nursing, we all know about that shortage. So just trying to take care of all these sick people, I think it's going to be a, a, probably get worse, a lot worse before it gets better. Mm-hmm. So if you were to project, for, once again, the new physician assistant who's coming out, mm-hmm. if you were to project what's going to happen to them over the next 20 years, if they, if they said, look, Ryan, what should I be looking out for? What do you see happening? In healthcare, uh, I think the role of mid-level providers is going to be, it's already pretty great, right? Because they're there aren't enough physicians to take care of all the problems we have. So I think they could be busy. I think they could do basically whatever they want to do. Uh, the biggest need is in primary health care. If there's a young PA that really wants to make a difference and they came out in primary care, the need is just outstanding. So they can kind of get after it as much as they want to get after it. It's just it's going to be a huge challenge. I think the, the amount of work is going to grow just from demographics and the sick people out there. So it's, uh, you're, you know, you're, the challenge is going to be trying to find 40 hours in a week to do everything that needs to be done. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with you. Um, we always often see pa- patients in the hospital and in the office here trying to do surgery on them. And then we realize they have so many comorbidities and they just, they're all additive. You've got some diabetes, you've got a little hypertension, you have a little heart disease, you've had a, a stroke in the past, you've had a history of DVT. DVT. So we're struggling to get people to do the right thing for them because we can't get them cleared or actually optimized for any surgical procedures. So I agree with you. It's very, very difficult these days. It's very difficult. As you know, you've been doing this a long time. It's not a a standard formula. A broken hip is a broken hip. And you can look at an x-ray and say, let's do a nail or let's do a hemiarthroplasty. But then you look at the x-ray and then you go meet the patient. You look at their chart and you look at everything and, and, and then you have to totally reconsider what you're doing. Because mm-hmm. you can certainly make people worse if you do the wrong thing, and uh, it really has to be individualized. And I think it's just going to get tougher and tougher. Yeah, I'm always amazed because the large corporations have stuck their toe into healthcare, but no one has actually decided to take it over. 
Mm-hmm. You know, you've got the Amazons, you've got Berkshire Hathaway, but no one has said, okay, I think I can run this business. Mm-hmm. It's probably so complicated. I don't know if they even want to try to run this business. It really is. Yeah, especially from the economic perspective too. I mean, that's ultimately what drives these businesses' decisions, right? And um, and of course, they want to do the right thing many times, but until they get the uh, the right amount of money in and take the risks involved to, to make a big difference, that's people smarter than I am are probably going to have to figure that out. Yeah. So um, I was reading the other day that the average weight of a man in 1960 compared to 19 or today's uh, values, it's probably about 25% increased, mm-hmm. which if you take a gentleman who was maybe 170 pounds, now they're maybe over 200 pounds. Mm-hmm. Um, how do we approach that problem? It just seems to be yeah. almost insurmountable. And that's, that's tough. And, and, and uh, that is a massive question. And my knowledge is high. The way I, uh, in my own life, I could, I could lose 20 pounds. <laughs> if you figure it out, please let me know. That being said, I'm very interested in, in figuring out why. And it's uh, multifactorial, probably. Um, it's fascinating to me to pull up, for example, gym class videos from the 1930s or 40s and look at kids there and then walk onto a, a playground today. It's 100% difference. Yeah. And it's probably multifactorial. I'd have to think that uh, diet would play probably the biggest role especially the quality of the food early on. If you walk through the aisles of a grocery store, it's vast majority is processed. What people eat is just different. Mm-hmm. There's all sorts of theories, seed oils or metabolic differences. There are theories of plastic contamination, even in the air and the, and the soil and pesticides. There's all sorts of theories, but no matter what theory you throw out, you're right. The evidence, if you just look at the graph, it's dramatically different. And then subsequently, the metabolic diseases, diabetes, heart disease. Chronic disease was pretty rare in this country before Industrial Revolution. Yes. Mm -hmm. People died of infections. They died of industrial accidents. They died of some cancers. But now it's almost all chronic disease. And it's amazing to see that it just didn't exist not that long ago. Yeah. I mean, even this is a little bit of an extreme, but you go to a Gettysburg Museum and you can never fit any of us into those <laughs> uniforms. Yeah. Uh, so they wouldn't let us probably fight the war there. Yeah. But it's it's a lot different. Um, and it is really a challenge. I think you're right. The The real answer is what's causing it. Right. You know, and I think, you know, it's easy to blame somebody else. We mm-hmm. say, look, the food manufacturers have scientists sitting there making sure we just can't eat one potato chip, mm-hmm. you know, because it's very difficult. Mm-hmm. And Oreo is a perfect cookie, you know. And, um, but yeah, I don't think we can hit those people either because no one's putting a gun to our head and saying, you know, go down there and get a pack of Oreos. Mm-hmm. So it's, uh, I think it's a huge problem. And I think you're right. Like most of us do die from chronic disorders. You know, if you take the number one cause of death, it is heart disease. However, these other comorbidities are what lead up to heart disease. So mm-hmm. what a challenge for the country. And the population over 65 just keeps growing. Mm-hmm. The other problem, of course, is that the number of children being born in the United States keeps getting less. So there's less people who have to take care of a growing number of population. Mm-hmm. That's also a, a very large problem, I think. Healthcare and, and everything. And when you go out to a, a, your grocery store and there aren't enough workers, that has to do with that, too. It's, it's a demographics issue. And the United States is faring maybe a little better than others, such as Japan. It's, uh, maybe China soon, but um, yeah, healthcare is going to take have the same challenges. So we have to get as many people into these uh, nursing programs, et cetera, medical assistant programs. The, the more, the better off we'll all be, certainly. Yeah, I think you answered this earlier, but if you were invited to speak at 
say, a nursing program or even a high school and say, look, this is why I like you to go into healthcare. I think nursing is a good job. I think occupational physical therapy, PA is a good job. How could you induce these younger people to go into this? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. And um, the I think it's pretty tangible. So, and I'm not downplaying manufacturing. I've had families who were coal miners and worked in factories. That being said, I think personally, for me at least, there's something different when you go to work and you earn your money by helping someone and their life truly changes for the better because of your efforts. And you see them smile, you see them feel better. They tell you their pain is less, their bone is straight, their hip is replaced. It's a very tangible, good feeling. And I think in a number of health professions, you can get that. And I think that's an advantage over some non-healthcare opportunities. The other thing is, from an economic standpoint, you can do pretty well in a lot of these fields, enough to do well. Nursing is, the pay is going up quickly because of the shortage. Mid-level providers can do very well. And you can be flexible in your career with some of these. Many of them have part-time opportunities. If you go and make widgets at the factory, you may have a hard time getting a part-time job where they're going to give you the hours that you need. Healthcare is in such great need right now that if you're a kid who wants to do it and you want to work part-time or work night shift to make it work for your family or do a little bit of this, a little bit of that, I think it's a nice work-life balance. So I think those are the biggest draws for, for health career. Now, um, you obviously went to physician assistant school, and like you said, you were an athletic trainer for a while. Did you ever think to yourself, boy, maybe I'll go back and be a doctor, or did you ever think along the road route I would stop and say, Maybe I should take that step. For me personally, I never seriously considered it. Um, There are times it's only natural, you know, if you're doing a lot of work and you work with physicians who are making more money, sometimes you say, you know, do I deserve more than that? But for me personally, thankfully, uh, I've always been very comfortable um, being a PA. And I, I, I feel... I guess maybe my ego isn't so great. That helps me. Mm-hmm. I think somebody with it really likes to be in charge of a situation um, may not make uh, all the time, may not make the best mid-level provider. If somebody is really confident and they want to be the end-all be-all and they're, they're good with what they do and they're smart, by all means, go to med school. But for me, I've always been comfortable when I don't feel capable of solving a situation. It's nice to have a backstop. It's nice to have a surgeon who has more training than I do, maybe more experience to bounce something off. Sure. So I never really considered going back. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a happy physician assistant. Sure. <laughs> I understand you stay happy by being outdoors and you like to hike and that type of thing. So tell us about that. Where do you? Where's your favorite hiking spot? Oh, if I had to name one place, I'd, I'd be besides this podcast right now. Uh, I'd say it in British Columbia, maybe north of Whistler, uh, hiking along some glacier, staring at a lake that's blue, some uh, bright blue Gatorade with the sun shining. I guess that would be my dream spot where i probably the best place I've been. But yeah, I do a lot of local hiking as you do. We like to discuss that. Pennsylvania is an above average state, I think, for hiking. I go out west as much as I can though, of course. What time of year do you like in Pennsylvania? I like springtime the best. Uh, It's still before you get covered in ticks and specifically no rattlesnakes out to scare you on the trail. So I like the spring and uh, Late fall is nice, too. There are a lot of hunters in the woods I don't like to disturb, but springtime is probably my favorite. Sure, yeah. So we're still safe on Sundays in Pennsylvania, right? Sundays, I, except for about five or seven a year. There have there are some Sundays that are designated for hunting. Mm-hmm. I always look them up before I go and uh, try to stay away from the bigger hunting areas. Yeah. 
a little wet in the spring in some places. Yeah. But I guess you're at higher elevations. You do better than I do. So. No, no. <laughs> I don't know about that. <laughs> and I'm very sorry we're keeping you from Canada. So. No, no that's, that's okay. That's all right. Maybe next time. <laughs> next week. Yeah. So the difficult question, of course, is, you know, President Biden calls you on the phone and says, look, Ryan, I want you to work on the health care treatment in this country. Uh, where do you start? Um, I think uh, you and I have known each other for a long time. And uh, in general, I'm a libertarian. Um, I'm a, Generally speaking, I'm not a big government interventionist person. So I might surprise you with this answer. I think the end, uh, the end game, personally, no matter how we get there, it may be painful. I think eventually we're going to be more of a single payer system. There are huge downsides to it. But here's, here's why I say that, is I think there's one population in particular that's hurting the most as far as healthcare and access to healthcare. And that would be the lower middle income people who don't qualify for any government assistance, but who cannot afford their co-pays or deductibles. So when I mentioned about more people having access to healthcare, that's, they're the big exception. I see it sadly at our, our office, people that avoid, avoid care because they just can't afford it. People with Medicaid, the, you know, the poor with a certain income below a certain level, they get access to care. The very wealthy, of course, have access to care. It's that lower middle class, I think, that I see squeezed the most. So I think eventually we're slowly getting there. The number of percentage of people on Medicaid and Medicare is growing. I think eventually it's going to get there. And I just have a hard time seeing that specific population getting squeezed. How it's taxed, how it's paid for, that's a whole boondoggle. Um, I just see it happening. It's just at, before it happens, I'm just seeing these people get squeezed and it's hard to watch. Mm -hmm. uh, where do you see yourself in five years? Five years, I'm hoping to still be in Altoona. Mm -hmm. Maybe 10 years, God willing, you never know what life throws at you. Uh, maybe I'll be uh, living part-time out west somewhere near a mountain, coming back to be <laughs> near my kids and um, maybe an early retirement. Five years, I actually hope to be right here. I love living here. I love practicing here. We have a really good practice, solid people, good people to work with. So five years, hopefully I'm doing my second part of this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> That's wonderful. I'm glad to hear you're going to be here for five years. And I'm, I'm hoping for 10. Uh, you've got great experience. You're the person people go to when they want to learn something, yeah, when they you. want to hear something. Uh, I think that, you know, as I learned being on call with you at times, I think you understand fracture management far better than an awful lot of people do. So you're always the one that I would say, you know, what would Dr. Shoot do with this particular case? And, and you knew. And that's a, that's a unique talent, and it takes years to get there. You can try to do it in five years, maybe 10, but I think you need to be in the game 10 years before you start to get a sense of this. You're well-received by the patients. Everybody is glad when they see you. Thanks for saying that. Um, I've had friends of mine who have called in and said, I need to see somebody tomorrow. I say, look, you're going to see Ryan. They call me that night. They say, hey, perfect. Thank you so much for doing that. So we're thrilled that you're here, that's for sure. Yes. Thanks. Um, I think everyone in this office would echo that. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, I, I absorbed a lot of knowledge from people here, yeah. specifically Dr. Shoot and whatnot. So yeah, I'm happy to happy to have absorbed it and give it back now. Good, great. Mm -hmm. So our guest today was Mr. Ryan Andrews, once again, physician assistant, over 20 years experience, uh, tremendous healthcare professional with uh, in-depth knowledge of fracture care and in general orthopedics. So Ryan, thanks so, for, so much for being with us. Yeah, thanks for having Thank me. You. Sure.